on this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, the final one for the week. We're going to be talking about finances because at some point the government, governments are going to have to turn off the taps. They just can't keep spending forever. What happens then? Because there's a lot of people, presumably, seemingly, who are fully reliant now on that government money. What happens when that dries up? We're also going to be talking about the Sobe bikes in Hamilton, the program that people, some people are now asking the city to pick up the cost of $700,000 a year. Should the city or should the city say, if you want to ride a bike, buy a bike. We don't have the cash. We'll talk about that one. And one of the most famous, infamous murder cases in Ontario history that never ended up with anybody behind bars, at least not the right person behind bars, is being revisited in a global news documentary on Saturday. We're going to talk to the man producing it, reporting on it, the Christine Jessup murder case. We'll be talking about that one as well. Stay tuned. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We have seen uh, very clearly over the last month and a half thereabouts in difficult times that governments know how to spend money. And we've seen that over the past month and a half or so that Canadians know how to accept money from a government in many cases to stay afloat. This is this is not for whatever things we pointed out that, you know, there may be waste or there may be fraud in the system. We've talked about that. There are a lot of people who are in difficult, difficult, difficult times right now. But even the deepest wells eventually run dry. And that raises a question about what happens when the government decides that it has to start pulling back because the money just can't go on forever. Yet many Canadians are still very much reliant on it. What then? Marvin Ryder is with the DeGroote School of Business. He is a favorite here. Everybody knows Marvin. I think Marvin probably cannot walk the streets of Hamilton anymore because he is so famous without people are there. Do they come up and ask for autographs and selfies and everything else by now? I'm in disguise, so they, they don't know who I am when I'm walking down the street. Well, those that's probably wigs, for the best. Wigs go a long way, given that I'm bald, so it goes a long well, way. Well, that and a mask. So yeah. now that we all wear masks, yeah. you're, you're good. Yes, exactly. Um, this is a, a very tricky situation at all levels, um, especially the governments are finding themselves in right now, because you can't spend forever. But if you stop spending, some people are going to be ill-equipped to pay their bills. What do you do? Well, I think, I think the best way to start this is to say that government policy, whether it's provincial or federal and even to some extent municipal, is that first this is a one-time event, and it's also an event we will recover from after a fixed amount of time. And that fixed amount of time seems to be on the order of 12 to 16 weeks. So to give you a sense of it, uh, from the first time that we started a lockdown, which was March 15th, we're now into week 10, so government was thinking that in another two to six weeks, this event would be over and the need for the support would end. Uh, and then the other part of government policy is that should there be some kind of a second wave, perhaps not now, but maybe in November or December, we would treat that wave differently so we wouldn't need these broad-based supports. That's the gamble that they're playing on here. Now, uh, in terms of borrowing, uh, at the end of the Second World War, Canada financed much of its war effort during the Second World War with debt. And our debt-to-GDP ratio, a measure of a GDP is kind of like your income, the country's income, our debt-to-GDP ratio was 1.2. So we had $1.20 for every $1 of income. Right now in Canada, our debt-to-GDP ratio is beginning to approach 0.48. 
So 48 cents of debt for every dollar of income. So we'd still have lots of wiggle room, especially if we view this as an event on the scale of the Second World War. But nobody wants to run up to those numbers. Nobody wants to keep this going. What we've got to do is get past this and then establish a new way of dealing with any residual cases. But can the government, and I mean, we, we can talk, and you've, you've made a compelling case about that the government can handle this. It's not ideal, but can borrow this money. But at some point, you would think they're going to have to pull back a little bit. I mean, they're just, it just can't, I, I don't think we can add, th- what is it, $300 billion that we've been doing already again, or that we expect this year. What happens to the people who are now fully reliant or very much reliant on the government when they say the well is getting a little dry, we have to start pulling back a bit? Well, again, the government plan is this. We shut down perfectly good businesses back in March and April, and we ask them to take a time out. And that time out, let's say it's three months, and then we want those businesses to reopen and as quickly as possible get back to normal. So, yes, you're a furloughed worker. There's more than a million people who are in temporary layoff mode. It's not that we plan on you permanently joining the unemployment ranks. We want you to go back to work as soon as we can get those businesses reopened. And so we've begun to see that in Ontario and other provinces, businesses starting to reopen, in some cases with a few extra employees, For instance, at my local grocery store, they now have a a cart minder, is the best way I can describe it, who sanitizes the cart when it's done and makes it ready for the next person. Never used to do that. The carts would sit outside and go wherever they had to go, but now they've got a cart minder. Another store I visited just today, they had a person who was keeping track. He had a counter, counting the number of people in the store, counting the number of people leaving, and and minded traffic. So it may actually be a little extra employment. But again, all of this assumes that all of those businesses can come back. And we've heard stories, you know, that the Reitman's chain is in some trouble. We heard that uh, uh, Victoria's Secret is in some trouble. Uh, Big stores like Saks Fifth Avenue and Neiman Marcus in the United States is in some trouble. Not all of those businesses may come back. So I don't think we'll immediately get all those million people who are furloughed back into a job quickly. But then we'll rely on other programs like traditional employment insurance to continue to bridge until we get to the other side. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Marvin, uh you are, would you describe yourself as an optimist? Because you come across, you seem to me to be an optimist about the way things are going to go. i half full kind of guy, yes. Because, uh, so let me throw this out to you then, because I, I, there was a quote from a guy who I would not describe as an optimist. That was the head of the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Yep. He said we're heading towards, and this is his quote, a debt deferral cliff, because a lot of mortgage uh, banks and lending agencies have told people they don't have to pay their mortgage for a few months while they get over this, but there are still people who will not be employed or won't have the money and they won't be able to pay that mortgage in a few months. Do you agree with him or do you think he's overstating? I think by nature he has to be quite conservative and pessimistic. Uh, Whenever you loan people money, your biggest fear is that people won't pay you back and you have to be prudent of that. To me, the big question here is not that, is not the debt deferral. I think most people understand they've got to pay this back, and if they can get their job back, they'll get back on track in doing that. The, to me, the big unknown is this so-called second wave. Go back to 1918 and the Spanish flu. The, the biggest mortality did not happen in the first wave, but in a second wave when they tried to restart too quickly. And certainly it's clear to me that although the government has pulled out all the stops, to support not just businesses but individuals 
during this first wave of COVID-19. If there was a second wave, let's assume for the sake of argument in November or December. In other words, the heat of the summer comes, the cases fall down close to zero, very manageable numbers, and it almost disappears from our mind. But then suddenly in November, there are hot spots somewhere in the world, maybe even in the country. How do we handle it? And clearly, doing what we did this first time is not repeatable. This is a once probably in a lifetime kind of way of dealing with this, we're going to have to have a different approach because we cannot afford to keep doing this. So my optimism is I think if this is a one-time thing, we can get through this and we'll, you know, get, the, we'll get the books started to be paid down, we'll get people back to work, and within a year we might even forget about this even happening. But if it keeps coming back, if we have wave after wave, we need a different approach because this complete shutdown just can't be repeated. So you're not expecting then uh, that some people are to see thousands of homes on the market in the next month or two because, or three, because people are forfeiting on their mortgage and can't pay it. No, we've not, we've not seen signs of that yet. Now, I'm not saying it won't happen if we can't get past this first wave, if, if we start to reopen and then suddenly Mr. Ford or, or Justin Trudeau or one of the other premiers say, well, we've gone too far, too fast. Okay, we've got to lock you all down for another three months. That would be a different story. But assuming we have begun to reopen and we don't have to stop this, I think we will be fine. We can withstand this given the government supports. My concern would be either a second wave or that we can't excuse me, get this restarted at this time. That's when the concerns start to come. Before, in the previous segment, we were talking about debt and people's debt and how they handle all this kind of thing. Um, the uh, One of the economists from the CIBC was quoted in the National Post today talking about Canada's household debt. And again, I think probably a pessimist compared to you. He says, we have crazy high household debt and this is going to cause a lot of people a lot of problems because they've got this amount that's building up. Uh, again, it, I don't. It doesn't sound like you agree with that. That we're not too far into household debt that we're all going to run into problems, assuming that it's this one wave. Yeah, let me give you two reasons for that. Uh, yes, the average Canadian has a dollar seventy-seven of debt for every dollar of income, but I would point out that roughly eighty-five percent of Canadians are still employed and still working. Most of the unemployment we've seen have been in lower-paying jobs, uh, younger Canadians. Canadians who didn't necessarily have a big mortgage hanging over their head, but often working in the hospitality sector. So the people whose debt I'm worried about would be people who would have more salaried jobs, more of the nine-to-five with the weekend off kind of jobs. And we haven't seen the level of unemployment. We've seen lots of innovation, working from home. Uh, you know, now suddenly you're working in the kitchen and the dog is your co-mate, uh, workmate on all of this. But we haven't seen that. And so if this was more broad-based, that I saw salaried people losing their jobs, but I'm not. I'm tended to be seeing people in hourly positions, in retail, for instance, people who are, are working in uh, hotels or in restaurants. Many of those people don't have that same level of debt. They may have some credit card debt, but they haven't made that big housing purchase yet. Uh, and that's why I'm, I'm still optimistic that we can get those people back into the employment. And then, because they're younger, at some point they'll switch to jobs that are more salaried, and that's when they'll take on the mortgages, what have you. But I, I, you know, what I've seen so far is that the number of houses being sold have dropped quite dramatically, but the prices that we're paying on average for those homes haven't moved hardly at all. We've not seen a big decline. And, and I think uh, April was certainly the worst month of this, May will be better. June will be better still. And assuming we don't stop this march back, 
uh, we'll get past this. It is always good on a Friday evening to have the voice of optimism on the air rather than just the voice of doom and gloom. Marvin Ryder, always appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this. Glad to be with you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The other day we were talking with Councillor Jason Farr, Ward 2, um, in the wake of the beginnings of the discussion of the bike sharing program in Hamilton running into problems. Uh, If you haven't heard the story, Uber owns the bike sharing program, that Sobe bikes, the thing you see down when you go downtown, the blue bikes that you can see into their holders, different places, or people riding them on the bike lanes occasionally and stuff. So this program is now looking like it is in deep trouble. But it's a program that is a real favorite of a of the biking set, not surprisingly. I mean, some people say, absolutely not. I couldn't care less. I never use it. I don't live downtown. I don't use it. Others say this is the lifeblood for them of getting around. It's a key component to the downtown transportation hub. HSR, Uber itself, bikes, you can do a lot of things. You can get around. Really, really important. So with Uber announcing that it's pulling out of its contract as of June the 1st, the city, which owns all these bikes and the infrastructure, is now looking at, okay, we're getting requests, speaking of the city, we're getting requests to pick up the operating costs for this program, which is expected to be somewhere in the neighborhood of $700,000 a year. Well, if you have followed, especially Andrew Dreschel's writing in The Spectator, um, you will see this has started a firestorm down at City Hall. The battle lines have been drawn. And a number of the downtown councillors, as if this is not the case with every single issue, downtown versus non-downtown, number of the downtown councillors say this is really essential. We need to be able to provide bikes and transportation and transit options for people in the city, low-cost options. And a number of other people who say, councillors, who say, who are representing other parts of the city, say, first of all, This isn't even available throughout most of the city. And second of all, we're looking down the barrel of potentially a $60 million shortfall this year because of COVID. How in the world are we expected to find another $700,000 for a program like this? That's the, those are the two sides. If you want to break it down into even more of a sharpened knife kind of thing, poverty Poor people need to be able to ride bicycles versus, no, we don't want to pay for poor people to ride bicycles. I I think that may be a little too simplistic, but in a lot of cases, that's kind of how it's being positioned. If you don't support this, you are taking away a vehicle, quite literally, for people who don't necessarily have a lot of resources to get around, don't have a car, it's cheap, you don't have to take the bus. So I want to know from you, If you were able to stand in front of city council tomorrow, today, right now, and they were to say to you, should we find $700,000 a year to support the bike program? Or should we tell the people who like the bike program, I tell you what, we like having it too, but we're $60 million or about to be $60 million in the hole. If you want bikes, you got two options. Find a private sector supporter who will pay for this. Or buy your own bike. But the city is not on the hook. The city is not obligated to pay for your bicycles. Which side do you fall on in this one? Pay for the public, not public, because you do have to pay, but pay for the bike service 
or say, find your own way. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Should the city be jumping into the mix to pay for a bike service, a bike sharing service? I mean, they own the bikes now. Should they pay to operate it? Or should they say, no, I'm sorry. If you want to get around, we've got other options, but we can't add this as well. I'll tell you why this becomes such a hot button issue for a lot of people. And again, I don't think it's any surprise whatsoever is again, we are dealing with, as seems to be the case with everything, doesn't it? We are dealing with another downtown versus not downtown story. Sobe bikes are not available in most parts of the city, the downtown and into Dundas they are, but on the mountain and other places, no. And a lot of people in the suburbs and elsewhere are saying, wait a second, we have just been through a two or three year argument about LRT, which was essentially about, we need all the money in the downtown to pay for the LRT that doesn't service anyone anywhere in the suburbs. But if you live in the suburbs, you're being selfish if you decide that you don't want to support it because this is for the whole city. And when the hockey arena with Michael Andlauer and the Bulldogs, when this discussion came up and he proposed putting the arena at Lime Ridge Mall, the argument was, no, it has to be downtown. We have to build the hub downtown. And now you bring another issue into the mix that seems to center almost exclusively on the downtown. I understand why people around the city, around other parts of the city are saying, I may love biking. I may support people downtown, but at a certain point, this becomes rather repetitive. This becomes rather repetitive that every single story apparently would go. The argument seems to be about the downtown. John joins me on the line now. John, how are you this evening? I'm very well, Scott. Excellent. Are you someone who would say, yep, pay the $700,000 for this program so it can keep going or find your own bike or find some private investor? I would say that uh, people should find their own way to get a bike, to get around. And I'll tell you why. The city is already spending hundreds of thousands of dollars keeping these bike lanes clear in the wintertime, all these special snow removal and all of that. And I'm not sure about you, but I, what I notice every time I drive, be it Cannon Street, Herkimer, Down Bay, these bike lanes are always empty. There might be the odd bike or two. So to spend another $700,000 of our hard-earned taxpayers' money to keep this thing afloat, I think there's uh, better things that the money can be used for. John, I appreciate your call. Thank you for that. I, I, it, I mean, it's look, there's a lot of people who echo what John said. There's a lot of people who say, well, every time I drive by, the bike lanes seem pretty empty. And that doesn't mean nobody uses the bike lanes, because obviously they do. But this also is not Amsterdam. This is not Beijing. We do not have thousands and thousands of people on bicycles all over the place. And so there are a lot of people saying, wait a second, we want to support bikes, but how much are we spending on bikes in a city that doesn't really bike? I mean, and again, I know people are going to take issue with that. I know there are people who do, but not like some other places. Would you support paying $700,000 a year to keep this bike program going? Public money, taxpayers' money at a year when we are 60 million potentially in the hole, or do you say, nope, sorry, we can't do it. You're on your own. 905-645-3221, star 9900. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
Should the city be paying the $700,000 estimated to pick up the price, pick up the cost to operate the Sobe bikes, the ride-sharing program in the downtown area now that Uber is pulling out of its contract? Or should the city say, I'm sorry, we are way in the hole now. We just don't have the money. We just don't have the capacity to add something else. We're... If we're $60 million behind, we're already looking at massive cuts, let alone adding new programs. Would you support this? Would you say, no, no, this is so important. This is so important, especially to poor people. That's the story that we must add this and find expenses elsewhere to cut. Or would you say, you know what? If you want to ride a bike, You can probably buy one for a hundred bucks somewhere. Go to a secondhand store. You can get one probably for less than that. Buy your own bike. Why am I paying for your bike? 905-645-3221, star 9900. Where do you stand on this one? Fred joins us now. Fred, how are you this evening? How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing great, Fred. How are you? I'm surviving. I'm doing good. That's good. Pay for the program or let people buy their own bikes? Well, what's happening right now? I always live by this, is what you need or what you want, need and want. And I think the $700,000, we could use it for something else right now for the, instead of these bicycles. And the city always lives in a bubble. They wanted the LRT for downtown, which we don't need. That was just somebody that wants it. And uh, there's a lot of things like that in the city. And with this virus 19, people have to start thinking, what do they really need? What do they want? And it's kind of tough to live that way. I know. But if you don't have the money, you don't get it. And that's the key, Fred. Thank you for the call, Fred. I really appreciate it as always. That's the key. If you don't have the money. And and I'll tell you the part of this that, uh, that I bristle at a little bit it's the idea that we sometimes hear that if you don't fully support lrt or now if you don't fully support this bike sharing program that these are things that are to help the poor or the poorer and therefore you're an elitist if you don't support these and you don't live downtown or even if you do you're an elitist because you may be able to have a car So you can get around, but what about the people who can't? We can have this discussion, but the idea that somehow I disagree with something or may disagree with it or may have a different opinion has got nothing to do with not wanting to help poor people. The problem is we are, to me, so far in the hole right now that we're going to have to start making huge cuts in all likelihood. We have to. The cities are not allowed to run an operating deficit. And that means cutting programs. Well, if we add more, it means more cuts. Well, if we're worried about the poor, we're going to start cutting programs that hurt the poor. So on a balance, how important is this compared to some other program that are going to help underprivileged people in the city? Is this really more important than that? I don't know. Here's what I would say about this though. And by the way, so you can still call 905-645-3221 or star 9900. I'll say this. And before anyone says, well, you're picking on cyclists. I have argued, and when Jason Farr was on here the other day, I said it to him directly. I have said for a long time that this city should be cutting costs by adding higher user fees. If you want to use something, you pay for it. You pay a little more for it. 
we can have, I'm not talking about crazy numbers, but we can add user fees to some facilities in the city. And one of those facilities, maybe not be the right word, one of those things in the city would be a cycling license. If you're an adult, if you're over 18 and you're going to use the bike lanes, you can pay five bucks a year. You can pay 10 bucks a year to help with the upkeep of those bike lanes. People go crazy. Cyclists, some of them go nuts when you suggest such a thing. How can you possibly ask me to pay for, well, you do it with our cars. You do it with motorcycles. You do it with powered motorcycles. And if you're now going to say, we're going to ask the city to have the city to be paying to maintain this bike share program, absolutely you're going to be taking out a bicycle license. Not so we can track you down, not so we can charge you through the teeth, but you're going to pay something for it because between the fees that would pay for this and the bicycle license, maybe, maybe you can raise enough money that it breaks even and then we can keep the program going. And I'm not opposed to the program. I'm opposed to taking on $700,000. But if you can, through cycling fees, a license, and people paying probably a little bit of a higher rate to use Sobe, maybe you can come to a point where it's a break-even proposition, and then we say, hey, perfect. But it's when people start to bristle about paying anything. I want it for free. I got to have it, and I can't pay for it. I won't pay for it. I don't have to pay for it. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. People pay to play hockey. People pay to play baseball. People pay to play football. People pay to play golf. All that stuff in this city. Why would you not pay to ride a bicycle? And I know you pay some, but you know what? All those things, the price has gone up in recent years. Why wouldn't you think, why would anyone think that we shouldn't be able to charge more if the costs are going up and if we have to pay more? If you want, if we want to set the fees so that this thing breaks even, absolutely. Perfect. Keep it going. But if people are saying, no, I want the city to pay for this and keep the prices where they are so I don't have to pay anymore, too bad, so sad, see you later, take the bus. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you were old enough to have been following the news closely or even just in passing in 1984, you absolutely would be familiar with the story of Christine Jessup. You'll remember that she was a nine-year-old girl who lived just north of Toronto who went missing one day in October that year. And three months later on Christmas Eve, as I recall, her body was discovered. She'd been sexually assaulted and murdered. And it was the story for a long time. It was the story, especially as police seemed to get nowhere. And then suspicion was put on different people. And eventually they arrested Christine's what was described as her, her rather odd neighbor, Guy Paul Moran. And you probably remember that he was acquitted in his first trial. The Crown appealed, took, took him to a second trial. He was convicted in the second trial, spent a couple of years in prison, and it was eventually, that conviction was overturned when DNA evidence showed he wasn't the killer. And it is, a, it is still a case that fascinates us, probably in some part because the killer is still out there. Well, tomorrow evening at 7 p.m. on Global TV, Crime Beat, is taking a fresh look at this case. And the man behind that episode joins me now. He is Global News Senior National Correspondent Eric Sorensen, who covered Guy Paul Moran's first trial. Eric, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Good to be with you. Is this why the story, this particular story, continues to intrigue us every time we hear the name Christine Jessup or Guy Paul Moran, the part because nobody has ever really paid for this, or is there something more to it than that? 
Well, that's certainly one of the tragedies of it. Uh, you know, in these cases, um, you know, you always hope that there's justice at the end. There can never be justice for the family that was involved, uh, the victim and, the, you know, the, the family of the victim. They'll never fully be satisfied and can't be because of what's been lost and who has been lost. But you hope that there will be justice in, in, in the idea that somebody will pay for, for this crime. And that didn't happen in this case. But it was more than that, as you say, because it wasn't just that the, the Jessup family was caught up in this and it was a long ordeal for them. But so was the family of Dee Paul Morin. And, uh, and it became kind of parallel tragedies because both of them were entangled with each other and with the police in this long investigation that went on, as you said, two trials and an appeal and eventually an inquiry. But out of that, you had, you know, both families, you know, having this very difficult ordeal and and still not having any kind of satisfaction at the end of the day. Obviously, for the Morin family, at least he, Paul, was cleared and exonerated, but... Um, you know, it was it, it cost him about 10 to 12 years of his life. And, you know, like, I, I don't want to be cliche. Uh, I really hate that. But at the same time, I mean, this story, in addition to the fact that it's a young girl and it's a neighbor and it's a wrongful conviction, you had so many other things to this. I mean, there is the the fact that it's a small town, which always makes somehow makes these stories weirder or something. And there's the fact that suspicion hovered around her family for a while at times. And there was like, there was every element of a movie in this thing. If someone had wanted to make it a movie. Yeah, it was a, it was a difficult case. It was a hard around, as you say, around the Jessup family. It was hard on the police. The, um, you know, the crime was committed in Queensville, but uh, Christine's body was, was taken, or she was taken, I guess, and her body was found in uh, Durham. And Durham at that point was a very rural community. And uh, and so it fell to the Durham Regional Police Force to take on the investigation. They didn't have a lot of experience with murder cases of this type. As you had pointed out, there was a lot of interest in this because it was in the greater Toronto area. So there had been a lot of media coverage. There was a lot of pressure on the police to to get a conviction. The family was bringing some pressure in that way as well. They wanted it. And so, you know, when, when Janet Jessup, Christine's mother, suggested to police um, who hadn't been getting very far at that point that, well, there's this weird type guy who lives next door, suddenly attention began to focus on Guy Paul Morin, who was none the wiser for any of this. He just was going about his life. He worked uh, sanding furniture, um, you know, in 1984. He played the clarinet. He did some beekeeping. And he was being questioned by police. Um, in, because, in part because Janet Jessup had said, look, this, this odd guy, and when they talked to him, the police, they found he seemed to be unusual. And so they arranged to, to get some hair sample from him. I think it was a, a, an undercover police officer pretended to be um, a student hairdresser, went to the community band practice where he was and was able to get some of his hair. That hair was taken to a forensic specialist who deemed it microscopically similar to a hair found in the uh, in the uh, uh, on the body of Christine Jessup, so microscopically similar isn't the same as what we have today in the way of DNA evidence, which is can be so certain. This was just you know the opinion that was uh, put forward at that point, but that and other evidence began to point towards Guy Paul Morin, and all of a sudden you had the case very focused on him, and uh, and both the police and the Jessups were convinced that they were pursuing the right fellow in this, and uh, and it went to trial. 
Do you think that a lot of this was simply the result of technology that existed then leading them astray? Because I, I read the book, I've read Kirk Macon's book, Red Rum, the Innocent, which by the way, if anyone can find a copy, I really, I, I think it's one of the greatest true crime books ever written. It's a fantastic, fantastic book about this. But the picture that's painted there is of a police force that really lost their way. What, did they really lose their way or did technology and other things let them down back then? Well, you know, in a sense, they lost their way. They they didn't feel they had lost their way. What they felt was they were focused on the right person. But but in the description the descriptions that would come later of so-called tunnel vision, where police got maybe too focused on one on one suspect, uh, then you start to exclude other possibilities, and that seemed to be, I think, where where many who have examined this, including Kirk Macon, saw that the police kind of went down the wrong path and uh, and ended up with with, with this. Um, with this view that Dee Paul Morin was the right guy. And there were other reasons why that would eventually uh, turn up to um, persuade so many people that he is uh, the person co- who committed this crime, in spite of the fact that he was acquitted at his first trial. Eric, you, you covered that first trial. I think it was, what, 86 was that first trial, the year that it finally happened? Yeah, January of 86 and uh, into uh, February. Honest, I mean, confession time, true confession from you. When you covered that trial, did you believe that he was the guy who had done it based on what evidence you heard then? Or did you think, no, there really is not enough there? No, I was I was persuaded that uh, that he he had committed the crime. We, You know, I was young, and you kind of accept that when the police are bringing forward evidence, that it is it's pristine in its own way, that it is it is the best evidence you could possibly have. And so even when they had the jail jail cell, uh, con- you know, um, informants who said that Dee Paul Moran confessed. Well, if why would they present that if it weren't the case? But but as evidence would later show, as the, the inquiry would later show, these were unreliable witnesses. And there was a lot of evidence that had been kind of wedged together to kind of make the case. And it may not, and it didn't stand up over time. But in those days, you're right. There was a the public was persuaded, the media was persuaded. Um, certainly the Crown and the, uh, the prosecutors and the family of um, Christine Jessup all persuaded at that point that he looked to be the person that committed this crime. And one of the things that made that, that, that lent weight to that was that the defense counsel for Guy Paul Morin was Clayton Ruby. And, mm-hmm. and there were cases, there, there were examples during this, during the trial in which, which Guy Paul Morin came off as sounding kind of like an unusual guy, just as he'd been described earlier. He kind of spoke in an unusual way. The expression red rum, the innocent that you referred to, well, red rum is murder backwards. And he had said supposedly to an undercover cop in a jail cell, I red rum, the innocent. That's my cure, man. And so Ruby felt he had to explain this odd behavior to the jury. And so he introduced psychiatric evidence that his client, his own client, was schizophrenic. And to, and to kind of label your client as schizophrenic, which puts you into this narrow category of of a person who might be capable of committing a serious crime and not being aware of it. This was an audacious thing to put forward, but it ended up leaving a lot of people feeling like, oh my gosh, if his own defense counsel feels he's in that category of person, then maybe there's something to this accusation against him. And so when he was freed uh, on the, uh, the acquittal by the jury, I think the Crown and the police uh, as well as the Jessups and many others thought, well, gee whiz, they, they didn't get it right because his own lawyer thought um, that that he was capable of committing such a crime. Uh, Moran himself has said uh, in the aftermath of all that, if he had one regret, it was that he allowed his lawyer to present that evidence because mm-hmm. there really 
is nothing to support it uh, after that trial to support any notion that there was anything kind of psychologically wrong with him. But the, but the seed had been planted at that point, and the Crown and the police, when they went through looking to, to appeal the case and to take it to a second trial, they always had that in the back of their minds that, hey, this guy was weird enough to be able to do something like that. Eric, I have not seen a photo, heard an interview, seen an interview, seen anything of Guy Paul Moran really since about, well, weeks after his try, his, his exoneration, and I think he did a couple interviews, and then he has vanished. Where is he today? As we understand it, now we had to go through, um, you know, third parties on this. He, is, um, he, got, he eventually got married, uh, had two sons, uh, bought some property north of Toronto, up towards Barrie, uh, and, his, uh, and, his, and, his, and decided at the time, back in the 1990s, that when this was all finished, he was going to drop out of sight. And he more or less has remained out of the public eye ever since. And so he's been true to his instinct to not come back and revisit this. Hmm. He, was, he, was, he, was, he made himself very much available, not just at the point where he was exonerated, but through the inquiry that looked into his wrongful right. conviction. He sat in through all of that and, and made himself available to comment on whatever was being testified to uh, on any given day. But but you're right. After that, he just kind of vanished. And when we talked about doing this program, uh, Crime Beat, for, on, that, on that story, we did reach out and tried a couple of, more than a couple of times to see if he wouldn't talk to us about it, and he didn't want to. So we're we're very much working with with a lot of the things that happened over those twelve years, and there is a lot of Guy Paul Morin and a lot of uh, from police and prosecutors and the Jessup family all through that period that still tells a pretty interesting story. Uh, just one more thing about him: Do we know if he's even does he has he changed his name? Has he changed anything, or is he living as Guy Paul Morin? He just doesn't want to talk about it. I, I couldn't say for sure if uh, if he's made any changes of that sort. I don't. Uh, I'm not aware of him having changed his name. Does the Jessup family still, because at first they really, even after the exoneration, as I recall, they still really believe that he did it. Do they believe he did it still? No, they, they, they for a long time believed he did it. Once the police had identified him and arrested him um, and they knew of him, you know, as a next door neighbor, they clearly had already deci- decided that he was a little bit unusual to start with. And then, you know, when the police are telling you what they were talking to the Jessups about, um, Ken, I recall, called saying that he, you know, they, they really helped to make them hate D. Paul Morin. So they, they believed he had committed the crime at the time of the first trial. They were crushed by the verdict that acquitted him. They continued to, to hold to the view that he was guilty because the Crown and prosecutors were moving in that direction. The appeal court said that there should be a new trial, gave them every reason to believe that they weren't wrong in their beliefs. A second trial was held. Most of the same evidence was presented again, but this time the jury convicted him. They then felt, finally, justice. This was eight years after Christine had disappeared. They felt they now had, were seeing justice. And it was up to the defense then to say, well, now we're going to appeal. But before that could happen, a little piece of DNA showed up that, was, that they could still extract from Christine's clothing. And DNA testing that wasn't available back in the mid-1980s was now available uh, a decade later. And so they then were hit with this news of, sorry, this that you have believed so strongly for, for about 10 years is actually all wrong. And it was very hard. Uh, Ken Jessup uh, was the one who spoke to it just right after the uh, hearing that exonerated him. 
And he said, we, we just, this, this is just, it's, it, you could tell it was just was a serious blow to how he viewed the whole thing, but that he accepted it. And, uh, and when the inquiry was held to look into the wrongful conviction, the, the family, the, the Jessics, they had come full circle. They no longer believed that, uh, that he committed the crime. They actually now wanted some answers from the justice system itself as to how it could have gone this way for so long, because they just imagine going through what they went through in the first place, losing Christine, and to have this kind of torturous path through all of these legal you know, maneuvers for 10 years and to find that you were on the wrong side of thinking about this whole thing the whole time. I mean, it just must be terrible for them. Eric, just before I let you go, I mean, does the Durham police, are do they, or does Metro Toronto police, or does anybody still have this case open? Because now that there's DNA, presumably the chance exists that it's in the system that someone who does something could pop up if it's an open case, or wh- where does it stand right now? Yeah, the, uh, I don't know how active it is, but they have gone back and looked at it several times through the years. They're always open to new tips if it's possible. Of course, so much was lost by with so many, so many years going by. Like the, the, the real killer obviously got far away. The trail clearly would have gone cold. You can't dredge up memories from witnesses 20 and 30, 40 years later is what uh, a former um, member of the Toronto Cold Case Unit was talking to us about. Uh, Stacy Gallant, he's in this program as well, talking about it. But he also makes the point that that DNA is still there and could still identify the killer. And one of the ways in which they are expanding that search, because using the DNA data bank in the, in the national system, it still only reaches those who have tested for DNA in the criminal justice system. That's still only a fraction of the of, of Canadians. But there are those DNA websites that exist now, and so they yes, are ancestry and stuff. Yep. That's right. And so they're looking at these Ancestry websites to see if mm. there isn't a connection. And, and he has said maybe there's just a chance that a family member of the killer might have tested his or her DNA and that they could get lucky. And that it caught, somebody in the, the, family it caught the Golden State. It caught the Golden State killer, right? That that very right. thing. So it, it, right. it has worked before. Uh, just before I let you go, I said that already, but do you have any reason to believe 36 years later, though, does Eric Sorensen truly believe that someone's ever going to be caught for this, or is this just going to be one of those stories that just hangs there forever? Well, you know, as you say, it's 36 years, and uh, and even when we spoke with the police about this, they talked about the DNA, which might be able to identify the killer alive or dead. Um you know, you don't know whether that person would still be alive. I mean, Christine Jessup was a relatively young woman at the time. She's in her 70s now. So that person would either be very old or will have died. And that may be one of the reasons why no DNA hit has ever, you know, come up with anything because there just there hasn't been anybody to pin it on because that person may not be around any longer. I'd say the odds are very long in finding, in finding the killer this many years later. You can uh, watch this, um, Eric's piece, tomorrow at 7 p.m. My PVR is already set on Global TV. Uh, or you can actually go to the Crime Beat podcast with Nancy Hicks, which will also be covering this story as well. Eric, really, I know you changed some things up to join us today. I really appreciate you taking some time. Thanks for doing this. Scott, good to talk to you. Again, uh, 7 p.m. tomorrow on Global Um Crime Beat is the name of the show, and you can see the entirety of the entire story. That is Eric Sorensen. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. 
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.